Hey Icon, uh, happy Sunday. I know that today is not going to be as beautiful as last week's Sunday, but I hope that you still have plans to get out and have a restful Sunday. And so today uh, we are in week three of our series called Rest, God's Promise for Sinners and Sufferers. Uh, and so we're going we're gonna to jump in here in a moment, but first uh, I want to pray. Would you join me in praying? Father, I thank you for the ability to have a series like this. To be able to come to the Bible and see that this is what you're like. That you are good and you are loving. You are kind and gracious. You are all the things that we need in order to have rest in our relationship with you. And God, do we need rest. Our lives are, are a blur of busyness. You're constantly going in and out at work or at family. Our lives move at a pace that causes the days to bleed together. And so we need your spirit to come and break in and to provide rest, to interrupt our lives with rest. And I pray that that would happen today, God. That there would be a sense of rest given to me and giving to all who are listening right now. That you would break in with this reality that we're going to explore today and that you would give us rest, God. Father, we, we trust you, God. We love you. We want to trust you more and we want to love you more. Would you unite your power with my weak words and as a consequence, cause us to trust you and to love you more. Father, we entrust this time to you in Jesus' name. Amen. So something to know about me, and I've, I've mentioned this before, but I am a younger brother. And I am convinced, I, not as an excuse, but as a, almost like an evidence as to why I am the way that I am. I think that being a younger brother does some things to your psyche. <laughs> it makes you into a certain type of person. Because when you're a younger brother, you are, whether someone is actually saying this to you or not, or if you're just reading it, you're into the situation yourself, you always feel like you're following in the wake of someone else, right? You're always following in the wake of your older brother. And my older brother is one of my best friends. I love him to death. But there's, there's that reality of you feel like you're following the first son. Um, and so for me, growing up, I just did everything I could to try to stand out to try to differentiate myself from my older brother. And, and, and if I'm honest, the, the way that it that worked itself out was not in uh, you know, standing out through something good, excelling in school, ex excelling in sports, but a lot of times it, it happened as I was standing out through rebellion. <laughs> you see, I, you know, I'm the third of four kids and I had more spankings as a child than all of my other siblings combined. I went to the ER more than all of my other siblings combined. I was a troubled child. When my parents had me and got to know my personality, they literally bought a book that said how to raise a strong-willed child. They'd already had two kids, but when it came to me, they felt like they needed some extra coaching. And when you're a child like that, you don't just get in trouble with your parents, but you actually get in trouble with your peers as well. When you're a stubborn troubled child, you have a difficult time to re relating to other kids in a healthy way, right? That's obvious. And the way that this showed itself most clearly in my childhood was from ages four to eight when we lived in Savannah, Georgia. 
During that time in my childhood, I got in more fights than at any other point in my childhood. <laughs> Needless to say, I, when it came to my peers, I had some enemies. I was a troubled child, and there was one of them out of all of this network of kids that was in this neighborhood that we lived in. There was one person who was my grave enemy. <laughs> you know, I was like six years old. You can call him a grave enemy, I guess, but... And in my mind, this kid was like 17. In reality, he was only like eight or nine. But this kid, Michael Green, was my greatest enemy in the neighborhood. I got in all these fights, but he was the one kid who me and him just never got along. We never did, and we were against one another. And there's, this, there's a story of, of where this broke out in a, in a really kind of bad way is, is when me and Michael one time got in a fight, and uh, he was beating me up like crazy. And I was on the ground and he just decided to uh, kind of, you know, humiliate me by grabbing a bunch of pine cones and just ta, 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 just pelting me as much as he could and then walked away. Um, and that news that, that Michael Green had beat up Josh and kind of humiliated him in, a fr- in, bunch of a fr- in, in front of a bunch of people kind of got out. And the thing to know is that in this network of neighborhood kids, what was really weird is that though I had trouble with some of my peers, all of the older kids in the neighborhood, for some reason, always came to my defense. I don't know why, but I, I always knew that if I got in too much trouble, if I was swinging above my weight, some older kid was going to come to my rescue. And so in this specific story, this is, this is a true story. Michael Green beats me up, hits me with a bunch of pine cones, humiliates me in, fr- in, bunch of, in, bunch of, in front of a bunch of people, and news gets out. And there's this older kid who always came to my defense. He was like my number one defender. He, he knew that his house was on Michael Green's way home, that Michael would have to walk by his house in order for that kid to go home. And so this is what he did. This is a true story. It sounds like the mafia, but he got on top of his house with his BB gun. And as he saw Michael Green walking by on his way home after humiliating me, this kid just pop, 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 started shooting his BB gun. It sounded like this kid was an assassin on my behalf in the mafia. It was so strange. But because I had all these defenders, like I said, I knew I didn't really have to be afraid. That, yeah, I might get beat up, but, you know, they're going to, they'll get what's coming to them as the older kids take care of them. And that reality is kind of like what we're talking about today. You see, we're talking about the reality of Jesus as advocate, as advocate. And now that doesn't mean that, and we'll get into this, that, you know, like for me as a kid, I felt like I could do anything because I knew I'd have a defender. Not that, but the reality of Jesus defending you, advocating for you, championing you before God. And we all need an advocate. My, my, my question to kind of get us off today start us off, to help you think is this. When you get yourself into trouble with sin, what are you going to do? Think about specific instances where you have screwed it up again. You've run from God. You've turned from God. How are you going to repair that relationship? You can continue to run from God out of fear or out of shame 
thinking that you first have to get your life back together because God doesn't want to see me. But we all know that running, that after sin, running away from God, avoiding him out of fear, gets us in a much worse place. It gets us into a whole lot more messiness. That is not the way of flourishing. Running from God is running from our peace. And so when you sin and you choose not to run from God, but rather to approach him, what's there to help you repair the relationship? Repair the relationship after you've ruptured it with your sin. That's what we're going to talk about today about how you can approach God, how you can still be safe in your relationship with God because Jesus is advocate. So we're going to look at 1 John 2, verses 1 through 2. Let's jump into that. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. Okay, first things first. Before we even jump into Jesus as advocate, we see that sin is never to be taken lightly. That the gospel is not morally neutral. That the gospel does call you to to moral change, to moral progress. It's, It's far more than that, but it's not less than that. And the reason we're doing this series on rest should not be confused as providing for you comfort in your sin. This series, the the wonderful truths that we are exploring together, all is meant for rest and comfort for you as a sinner, but not in your sin. It's meant for you to, as a sinner who who still goes back, who still moves back, for you to be able to see that there are arms for you to rest into in the arms of Jesus, but not for you to rest in your own sin. Not for you to get comfortable in your own sin. You see, when you become a Christian, Scripture gives us some really clear insights and language around what actually happens when you trust in Jesus. And one one of the big things that Scripture shows us is that when you trust in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to you and takes out what is called a heart of stone. A stone that is is dull, that is stony and unable to feel what's really going on in your life. Unable to see who God really is. The Spirit takes that out and gives you a heart of flesh. A heart of feeling, a heart of sensitivity that is sensitized to the glory and goodness of God. And so because of that, you see what sin actually is. You see, after a Christian, after you become a Christian, you're actually far more uh, in tune with the sinfulness of sin because you know how good God is. Sin is not to be taken lightly. This series is meant to speak to the grief that we feel in our sin, to to lift us up out of that into the wonder of the gospel, into the secure standing you have in Jesus Christ. And John here is about to get into that wonder, but he first lays down that truth that sin is not to be rested in. Rest in Jesus is impossible when you are resting in your sin. The glory of the grace and love of God can't be found in the heart of someone who's treasuring sin. 
who's still holding on to their idols, a flippant, a flippant attitude towards sin desensitizes your heart to all that we're even trying to accomplish here. Sin has to be taken lightly, cannot be taken lightly, has to be taken seriously to know the glory and goodness of God, to really feel all of what we're talking about in this series. And John goes on. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. To, to be sensitized to sin with the new heart that the Spirit gives us does not mean that we don't still sin. It doesn't mean that we don't still struggle, and John knows that. He knows that the new man or the new woman that God is creating in us by His Spirit as He moves us and conforms us more and more into the image of Jesus Christ, He knows that all of that is happening in the context of a world that's still fallen, a mind that's still broken, a flesh that still longs for the things of this world, that still lusts after these affections for the world. John knows that. He knows that. He knows it's going to happen. A Christian doesn't enjoy sin, doesn't rest into it because they are made new by the Spirit, but also a Christian isn't excused from the reality and occasion of sin in their life because transformation takes a long time, a lifetime in fact. And so sin still happens. All of our life we are moving toward likeness to Jesus and moving away from sin. But that, that path is so back and forth. And so in that back and forth, when we move back and choose to find identity in work or choose to find comfort in the reality of sex or substance, when we, need to, when we feel like we need to firm up our sense of self in something that is contrary to who we are in Christ, what do we do then? So if sin is going to happen, what do we do? The text invites us to rest in Jesus as advocate. There's an invitation here in 1 John 2. The impulse of our fallen mind that still has false thoughts about God that doesn't quite, isn't quite as tuned in to the reality of who God is as it should be, our impulse is not to think that at the moment of our sin, there still stands an invitation. There still stands an invitation to come, to rest in Jesus. But here we see in 1 John 2 and all throughout the Bible that we are wrong. <laughs> that at the moment of our sin, there is still, as inviting as ever, an invitation to come to God. And this specific instance of that invitation is the invitation to come to God because you have an advocate with the Father. What does that mean? I think one helpful way to understand this is to kind of compare and contrast it with a, a similar thing that Jesus does, which is called intercession. So uh, in Hebrews 7.25, listen to this. Consequently, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So the author of Hebrews had just finished 
uh, this kind of long tirade around uh, priests and being uh, how they intercede between uh, God and the people and how Jesus is the perfect priest because his sacrifice is perfect. And here in 725, he says that Jesus is able to save us to the uttermost because he always lives to make intercession for us. So Jesus is always doing the intercession, always doing the action of intercession, which means that he's, he's standing between as a, as, a, as a party in the middle between us and between God, making sure that the general sinfulness in us, not even the occasions of sin, but the general corruption, the general bent away from God, that that reality doesn't rupture the relationship. Think, think marriage counselor, someone who, yes, is coming in in order to uh, provide counsel and advice about how to get the marriage back together and it, for it to be flourishing. But also they are first existing as, a, as one to, to make sure that the relationship isn't ruptured. They come in as a almost neutral party, making sure that the other parties are hearing one another clearly, seeing one another clearly. That's the intercession of Jesus standing between us and God, making sure that relationship remains intact despite our general, consistent, always there corruption. But Jesus as advocate is similar but different. It's different in what it communicates. If, if intercession is Jesus standing in the gap between us and God, always ensuring that the relationship is never at risk, his advocacy is actually him crossing the line over to our side and commending us to God. Commending us to God. Think about that for a moment. If Jesus is an advocate, that means he is on your side. And that's not to mean that he's on your side and against the side of God. That is contrary to what we're saying. But Jesus, is ad, to say that he is advocate is to say that he has a heart that at the moment of your sin moves towards you, moves over to your side in order to stand by you and champion you to God, champion you to the Father. And it happens in specific moments of sin. That's what John says here, right? Do you see that in the text? If anyone does sin, Jesus' intercession is always happening because we always have this, this flesh in us that's still in some ways moving us away from God. But in these specific instances of sin, the occasion of actual sin, the advocacy of Jesus is awakened that it's in that moment when you actually screw it up, when you actually walk away from God, when you actually stop trusting in his goodness, it's in that moment that Jesus moves over, that the advocacy of his heart bursts forth for you. And John uses here the, the, the present tense, right? So you know what that means. Our sin awakens the advocacy of Jesus in that moment. It doesn't say that if anyone does sin, we will have an advocate, but actually says that we have an advocate. Advocacy happens in real time. Jesus doesn't wait for us to get our act together and then commend us to God to say, hey, look, he got it together. See, so this is why you should still accept him and receive him. No, at the moment of our sin, 
At the very moment, Jesus steps over across the line and becomes our advocate to God the Father. He commends us to God. Listen to how Dane Ortland in the book Gentle and Lowly, which is the book that we're basing this whole series off of, listen to how he describes this. We are indeed called to forsake our sins, and no healthy Christian would suggest otherwise. When we choose to sin, we forsake our true identity as a child of God. We invite misery into our lives, and we displease our Heavenly Father. We are called to mature into deeper levels of personal holiness as we walk with the Lord. Truer consecration, new vistas of obedience. But when we don't, when we choose to sin, though we forsake our true identity, our Savior does not forsake us. These are the very moments when his heart erupts on our behalf in renewed advocacy in heaven with a resounding defense that silences all accusations, astonishes the angels, and celebrates the Father's embrace of us in spite of all of our messiness. The moment of our sin, we get commendation. Think of that type of grace. You get advocacy and commendation. And isn't that what we all want? We all want to be commended into a relationship. It's the reason why you network at your job. When you meet a new person, you first want to find out about them. That's what happened whenever I met my wife, right? I, you know, there were a few things that I did. I, I, I got in her way to make sure that uh, we were uh, getting to know each other a little bit more and I was around her and she could see me around and interacting with other friends. But also one of the first things I did was go to her friends who I knew and say, tell me about Courtney. What's she like? Is she worth pursuing? Is, is she a solid woman? Do, do, do you think I should lean into this thing and try to see what could, what could be here? Because I knew that if her friends didn't commend her, then there's no use in me trying. <laughs> it's not going to be a, a relationship that I wanted. And praise God, they did commend her. And here we are. But we always want commendation. We network in jobs. The, the re, you know, so many of the promotions that we want or moving to a new company, all of it is almost dependent on you being commended by someone who that person knows. If you want that promotion, then you first have to go to this guy who knows this guy, and that guy can commend you over here. We operate, our relational web is always operating based off of commendation, off of advocacy, someone vouching for us. But the, the advocacy that Jesus gives here, as we see in the text, is not him vouching for us like, hey, she's trying her best, just, just give her a break. He, he, he's moving along, just give him a break. I know he's kind of messy right now. No, the advocacy of Jesus is based off of what? His own righteousness. That's why John says we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So Jesus' commendation of us to God is, is based on his own righteousness, which is why he's even able to do it in the first place. What other reason would there be for him to commend you to God, for him to advocate for you? It can only be because he himself is perfect and able to give you his righteousness that makes you commendable. That makes you worthy of being received 
by God. As he says to the Father, I know this man or this woman has sinned, but I with all of my righteousness am standing on his or her side to cover, to save, to make sure that she stands before you without fear. Father, I give to you all of my righteousness for this person. His righteousness is our commendation to God as he actively advocates for us in the aftermath of our sins. Sins that he himself bore on the cross. Right? That's what John gets into later. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. He's the one who's paid the price. There's no more, there's no more price to be paid. There's no more atonement to happen. He's already taken it. He's already satisfied the wrath of God that is awakened by your sin, that's already been satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus. He did that long ago, and then now, even today, in real time, stands beside you in the moment of your sin and says, Father, I commend this man. I commend this woman to you based off of my perfect record. That, my friends, is safety. That can give our hearts rest. So the opening question of this sermon of what are you going to do when you sin? How are you going to repair that relationship? The, the, the invitation is what it is to rest in Jesus as advocate, to rest in the fact that you don't have to come to God with excuses and reasons and for self-justification, but you can come to God You can repair that relationship, that relationship that is the source of your peace and hope, that firms you up in your identity of who you are as a child of God. You can reapproach that relationship with confidence. You can draw near to God without fear because there, waiting for you already at the moment of your sin is Jesus standing there, commending you to God. Silencing all accusation. There's that, you know, there's a story in the Old Testament that actually shows this really, really well. And I just want to explore this really briefly because it gives some imagery to what's actually going on with what we're talking about. It's in Zechariah 3, verses 1 through 5. Then the Lord showed me Joshua, the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. Do you see the picture? (laughs) This, This high priest Joshua who's supposed to be like the Holy One of Israel, the one who gets it the most. He's standing before God, 
clothed in filthy garments, which is imagery to say that he himself is filthy, with sin and with guilt, with corruption and with shame. And Satan, the one who Scripture calls the accuser of the brethren, the one who exists in order to accuse us before God, who knows all of our sin like we do, who is a far better accountant of our sins than even we are, is accusing this man before God of all the reasons why God should send this high priest out. And how does the Lord react? Does he rebuke Joshua? No, he rebukes the accuser. And he says, the Lord rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Meaning, is this not one that I myself have saved? And then the angel of the Lord says to Joshua, I have taken your iniquity away. That's propitiation. That's iniquity. That's sin being taken away from us and placed on Jesus as the sacrifice. But more than that, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. I'll give you what you don't have. I will give you righteousness. Righteousness that will advocate for you before God himself. So here Joshua is at risk as ever of being sent out of the presence of God with all of his sins on full display as the accuser accuses him before God. But Jesus steps in says, no, I will take your iniquity away. The Lord rebuke you, accuser. It is I who have taken the iniquity of this man away and who will clothe him with pure righteousness. That's the invitation today. To let Jesus take away your sin and to advocate for you with the Father and against the accuser. Against the accuser. So, what makes you feel secure in the presence of God? It's Jesus as alone. Jesus alone as advocate. And when you receive that truth, when you receive this great truth of Jesus standing beside you and advocating for you before God, that makes you into a certain type of Christian. It actually does some things to you. You know, all of the, we, we talk a lot around here about spiritual disciplines or what we call relational practices. And, and I want you to see that relational practices or spiritual disciplines, they all are dependent on the work of Jesus. The reason you can read your Bible, the reason why you have access to God in prayer is because of what Jesus has done. And specifically, this reality of Jesus advocating for you before God, it gives you space to practice a specific spiritual discipline, which is silence. Rather than self-excusing, of minimizing, of justifying, we can put our hands on our mouth. We can refuse to speak in defense of ourselves because Jesus is doing a perfectly good job of that already. We can be silent before God. We can confess our sin and then we can stop talking. We can, we can almost stop apologizing, thinking that our apologies is what's going to win the favor of God back. 
The advocacy of Jesus makes us into a certain type of Christian who knows when to stop talking, who knows when to stop excusing, stop justifying, stop minimizing, stop making your case before God. Jesus is doing a perfectly good job of that already. You can be honest, and in that honesty, you can be safely silent. Letting Jesus be the advocate that you need. You don't have to make your case before God. So I would exhort you this week, spend some time in silence. Even, like, even after the moment of your sin, in the, in the pain of conviction, there, allow yourself to confess to God, this is what I've done. No minimizing, no justifying, no excusing. It's not this person's fault. It's not this circumstance that drove, that drove me to that. It's my sinful heart. That's the honesty piece. And then stop talking. Allow yourself to sit under the words of Jesus. I will take your iniquity away and clothe you with pure vestments. I will take away from you what you have and I will give you what you do not deserve. I will take away from you what should separate you and I will give you what will bring you in. Hear the words of Jesus this week. So make space this week, icon, for silence. To sit before God in in prayerful contemplation on who He is, inviting Him to speak and for you to hear those words clearly washing over you even in the wake and aftermath of your sin. Jesus is your advocate. And because of that, you can rest. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that though you need no convincing of the righteousness of Jesus, Jesus still advocates for us to you, God. How generous you are, God, in our salvation to provide for us a way into your presence that is always and forever safe, both through the intercession of Jesus, but in the moments of our sin, the advocacy of Jesus. God, remove from us the temptation to talk, the temptation to explain away our sin, the temptation to make our case before you, God. That's all useless. One, because it would never work. We are far too sinful. But two, and more importantly, because Jesus is doing a perfectly good job of making our case already. God, give us the rest that we need with that truth. Allow us to be silent before you, hearing by your Spirit the commendation that Jesus has for us to you, God, standing right beside us. And let that give us rest. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we're going to do a a few things of response. And we do the same things every single week. And first is, funny enough, a moment of silence. For you to be able to just sit and be silent. To just just sit and think and allow God to, to, to work into your soul and into your mind what's been said today. And so we're going to have a moment of silence for you to reflect. And I would just encourage you, actually be silent. 
not just with your mouth, but with your mind. And let the advocacy of Jesus speak enough for you. Second, we're going to give. We know that our salvation comes from the very generous heart of God. And we know that, like we say every week, that there are people in Seattle who are doing the exhausting rat race of self-commendation, whether through work or through relationship or through sexuality, whatever it is, looking for someone to commend them to the world and without them even knowing it, to God, and it's useless. And so we give in order that the gospel would be heard by those people of the safe advocacy of Jesus. And then finally, we're going to take communion. We're going to remember that the body and the blood of Jesus is the propitiation for our sins, is what has taken away our sinfulness. And we can go to God in His righteousness, knowing that Jesus, in His body broken and His blood shed, gives us a safe route back into the presence of God. Let's do that now.